Hello, food nerds. Welcome back to Literally Delicious. I'm Nick, and on this week's episode, we are doing an entire meal. That's right, not one dish, not one drink, but an entire meal inspired by and with recipes found in one work of literature. But before we begin, I thought we'd start with something a little bit different here. This is a quote from the book that we are going to study today. And I want you to think about, hmm, who might have given this quote? An argument I have with serious food people is that they're always talking about how creative cooking is. Cooking is very creative, is how they put it. Now, there's no question that there are a handful of people doing genuinely creative things with food. Although, a lot of it, if you ask me, seems to consist of heating up goat cheese, or throwing strawberry vinegar in this calf's liver, or relying excessively on the kiwi. But most cooking is based on elementary, long-standing principles. And to say that cooking is creative not only misses the point of creativity, which is that it is painful and difficult and quite unrelated to whether it is possible to come up with yet another way to cook a pork chop, but also misses the whole point of cooking, which is that it is totally mindless. What I love about cooking is that after a hard day, there is something comforting about the fact that if you melt butter and add flour and then hot stock, it will get thick. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing in a world where nothing is sure. It has a mathematical certainty in a world where those of us who long for some kind of certainty are forced to settle for crossword puzzles. I really love this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes about cooking. You may think that, oh, right, of course, Julia Child said that, or maybe MFK Fisher. But no, actually, this quote comes from Nora Ephron in her 1983 semi-autobiographical novel called Heartburn. In Heartburn, the main character, Rachel Samstep, is a food writer married to a Washington journalist named Mark Feldman. Rachel is based on Nora herself, and Mark is based on her second husband, Carl Bernstein, of Watergate fame. The book depicts the demise of the couple's marriage as the characters Mark and, actually, Nora Ephron's husband Bernstein himself were both unfaithful to their wives, even as their wives were pregnant. Heartburn would later be adapted into a film starring Meryl Streep as Rachel Samstadt and Jack Nicholson as Mark Feldman. Efron is actually best known as a writer and director of films. She wrote the script for When Harry Met Sally, which stars Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. She then wrote and directed Sleepless in Seattle, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. In 1998, she wrote the script for You've Got Mail, which was directed by her sister. In 2009, Efron directed and co-wrote the screenplay for Julie and Julia, starring Amy Adams as Julie Powell, a blogger and memoirist who cooks her way through Julia Child's cookbooks, and in part inspired this podcast episode today. Sadly, Efron passed away in 2012. So Efron's talents were truly writing love stories and capturing the ups and downs of married and single life. The way that she does this in Heartburn is by sharing recipes that Rachel thinks back on as she reflects on her crumbling marriage. Efron's background was in journalism, though it is clear that from many of her movies that food played a huge role in her creative life. Though no professional chef, her recipes and heartburn have won her acclaim in various news sources. Kate Young for The Guardian called Efron's recipe for linguine alla chica, one that she would be making again and again. 
and I will be making that recipe later on in today's podcast. So, where did Efron get her recipes then? Well, as Heartburn makes clear, in its ironic and often tongue-in-cheek style, Efron attended and hosted many a dinner party with her husband Bernstein, moving around Washington, D.C. and her native New York City, meeting politicians and celebrities. The book's recipe for making bread pudding was apparently given to the main character by the chef at a popular New Orleans family restaurant named Chez Helene. There's no way to verify the provenance of the recipe, but perhaps Efron did in fact get the recipe from the real chef at Chez Helene, which actually was a restaurant that inspired a critically acclaimed 1980s CBS series, Frank's Place. So Efron definitely had lots of friends who shared with her lots of recipes. One friend in the text uh, who's cited is Lillian Hellman, and Lillian Hellman's pot roast is one recipe that I'll be making today. Efron was sometimes friends with the late playwright and humorist who apparently gave her the recipe. I'll make this recipe later as well, as I said, and some other recipes from the book include bacon hash, the four-minute egg, cheesecake, key lime pie, potatoes three different ways, peach pie, and sorrel soup. I'll be making a few of these recipes, but the common denominator, I think, between all these recipes is this. They almost all have some kind of convenience food as part of the recipe. Or, sometimes the recipe is found on the back of the box or can from that convenience food itself. Take, for example, Lillian Hellman's pot roast recipe. Its basic flavorings are Campbell's cream of mushroom soup and a packet of French onion soup powder. Not only are many of the recipe's ingredients pre-packaged food items, I found a version of this recipe itself in the archives of Campbell's soup recipes. Lillian Hellman's pot roast is not the only recipe from the book whose origins come, at least in part, from the back of the box recipe. Here are some of the other convenience food origins of the recipes that I will be making today. Rachel Samstedt's Vanagrette recipe may be found in recipes from the Kraft Heinz Tets kitchen, which use Grey Poupon Dijon mustard. Rachel's recipe for potatoes Anna reads very similarly to Betty Crocker's recipe, And, as Rachel herself comments on in the story, the cheesecake recipe was pulled from the back of a Philadelphia cream cheese package. (laughs) Though some of us may look down upon these convenience food recipes today, my thesis, if you could call it that, for this episode is this. Convenience foods play a huge role in America's gastronomical history, and heartburn is actually an artifact that captures how, in the late 70s and early 80s, America was ripe for recipe exchange because convenience food standardized the taste and measurements of many ingredients, giving home cooks, mostly women, the chance to create by doctoring up the back of the box recipe, while saving them time as well so that they can be great dinner party hosts. In fact, thinking about a recipe that my Nana would use brings to mind the image of an index card with, you know, a recipe scribbled on it, and from those index cards and In fact, sometimes straight from the back of a bag of Toll House chocolate chips, we made Christmas cookies together every year. We have so many blogs and websites available today where we can get our recipes, but the index card was the original recipe exchange. And you'd always, you never had to scroll through hundreds of lines of life story to get to the actual recipe. When researching for this episode, I got really interested in the history of the back of the box recipe and how they have shaped our American cooking culture. 
I found that food historians actually agree that convenience foods opened uh, test kitchens to create recipes to increase the demand for their products. And, and in turn, these recipes reflect the changes in American economy in the mid-20th century and, and created a few changes of their own. So according to an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Tulsa, Emily Contois, the biggest rise in the popularity of convenience food recipes is likely in the 1950s and 1960s when the convenience cuisine of the period uh, takes off because the food industry needed new markets for processed foods that they created for soldiers during World War II. So this, along with other technological shifts in the day, like the increasing home freezer ownership, as well as social trends, like more women working outside of the home, made the back-of-the-box, the back-of-the-can recipe uh, something that you saw way more often, even though the origins, although hard to track, go as far back as the 1920s and 1930s. In fact, a really early one is the General Mills Rice Krispies Treats recipe, which was made in a General Mills test kitchen and uh, led to more purchasing of the Rice Krispies product. Another thing to mention here is in terms of the origin of the convenience food, the rise of a field called home economics, which you probably remember was a class that you could take in high school. But home economics was a true scientific study which combined cooking with nutrition and sanitation as well. Graduates of home economics programs, many of which were women, went into test kitchens where they were employed to create these recipes to help market the convenience food. So the thing here that really gets me is that you know professional women who graduated from these food science programs were making recipes that uh, women uh, working in the home could really use, make their own, create with, and save them time so that they too could, could go out and get jobs in an ever-changing and ever-adapting economy. Now today I know that we tend to look down upon these recipes that are, you mix cans together. I know that my family has made a couple over the years where I was just like, eh. but if you really think about it, so much of our American cooking culture really kind of comes from the back of the box recipe. So much so that the recipe for pumpkin pie that you see on the pumpkin pie filling can, that really truly is my grandma's pumpkin pie recipe, if you know what I mean. So it's hard to disentangle the back-of-the-box recipe and these convenience food items, which has made our lives much, much easier, of course, and uh, these recipes that we all have. So I think that heartburn really captures now in the 1980s, 1970s, and into today. People in the United States love to cook. They love to share recipes. And oftentimes we don't even remember where we got this recipe from. It's just on an index card somewhere. And as it turns out, it might have or originated in these test kitchens. So just a little food for thought today as I take you into the kitchen where I make not one, not two, not three, nor four, nor five, but six recipes from Nora Efron's Heartburn. So I'm really happy that you're joining me today, food nerds. I'll get you into the kitchen. But first, let me remind you of our socials. Please join us on Instagram at literallydelishpod. 
And if you would like to suggest a food or drink from a work of literature to see us make, send us an email at uh, literallydelicious at gmail.com, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you there. So, as I always say here, without further ado, let's get to it. Why just read it when you can eat it too? Let's head to the kitchen. Hello, food nerds. Welcome into the kitchen, where we are going to begin on our meal from Nora Ephron's Heartburn, starting with Lillian Hellman's Hot Roast. I got here about a two and a half pound chuck roast, which I'm just going to douse in a little bit of flour, about a tablespoon. And what this does is dry off the outside of the roast so that it gets a nice proper sear. While I do this, I've got my oven already preheated to 350 degrees and my Dutch oven heating over medium-high. So to my Dutch oven, I'm going to add about two tablespoons of olive oil. And I know that in the original recipe, it calls not for browning. But what browning does is it gives a better color to the final dish and it locks in the moisture in the chuck roast. So, the chuck roast going in the pot fat side down. So, you hear that sizzling away. While that gets going, I am going to begin on our different pies that we're making. One cheesecake and one key lime pie. Okay, food nerds, I've given my hands a good solid wash, and we're going to begin now on the graham cracker crust. I'm doubling my usual recipe here because I am making two graham cracker crusts. I have 10 tablespoons of butter melted away in a pot, and to this I'm going to add about four cups of crunched up graham crackers. The way that I like to do my graham crackers for graham cracker crust is by hand in a big Ziploc bag. And the reason is it gets you a good variety of big crumbs and small little dust of graham crackers that really gives the final crust good cohesion. Okay? So about four cups of graham crackers. That's about 20 sheets of graham crackers. And to that I've added a half a cup of sugar. And I'm gonna give this a stir up. Just making sure that I get all of the graham crackers soaked in that butter. I'm gonna return to the pot roast here in a minute. I've taken that off the heat so it's not to burn it, but you can still hear it kind of sizzling away, and I like that sound a lot. Okay, so what I'm just doing here is putting our graham cracker crust together. I've buttered pretty well, 
a nine inch pine pan, and we're going to make the cheesecake graham cracker crust first, because as that is going to ultimately end up getting baked, we want to put that in the oven right away. So I'm going to load up my pan here with graham cracker crumbles, spread them out a little bit, and he wants enough graham cracker to cover the bottom and the side. This is going to make a pretty thick crust. Okay, and the next thing I do here, I don't want to apply too much pressure to this, but just taking a measuring cup with a flat bottom, push down with about, say, the amount of force you would apply putting on a stamp or something. Okay, not too much force because you, you want this to stick together, but you don't want it to be so pressed into the pan that you can never get it out again. Okay, so just a little bit of pressure here. All the way on the bottom and up the sides too. I'm rotating the pie pan as I press the graham crackers to the side, checking to make sure there are no gaps at the bottom. Sealing the sides last, and this is going to look very rustic. Just adding a little bit more graham cracker now. This is going to be delicious, but I never said healthy. Lots of butter in this recipe, as you'll see. Okay, I'm happy with that. So I'm going to put it in a 350 degree oven for about seven minutes. This part is called blind baking the crust. Okay, and that's going to create a nice cohesive bottom so that our cheesecake doesn't fall through the gaps in the graham cracker crust. Okay, and while that blind bakes, I'm going to put together my second graham cracker crust for my key lime pie that is going to ultimately go into the fridge. So I'll get to work on that, and then we'll return back to the pot roast. Alright, the graham cracker crust for the key lime pie is in the fridge, destined to go ultimately in the freezer. So whenever you are making a graham cracker crust for frozen dessert, you just prepare for those to go into the freezer by chilling the graham cracker crust first, and that just brings all the butter and sugar together and make sure your crust holds up. So let's return to the pot nose now. I am dicing a small onion here. This recipe is so easy, and it uses a lot of shortcut store-bought ingredients that if you listen to the first part of this episode, which you should, food nerds, you'll hear about all of these uh, convenience foods and convenience recipes that just have kind of made their way into our kitchens over time so that like grandma's recipe for pot roast may have actually been partially inspired, if not taken the whole way from the back of a, a box of Campbell's or, should say a can of Campbell's soup or a, 
a box of uh, Lipton soup mix, which we are about to use here in a moment. Onions going into the pot with the pot roast. Just right on top and along the side, wherever you can find some space. And then to that, we're going to also add two cloves of garlic. It's chopped. My favorite thing to do, pop open those garlic cloves, peel them out of their little skins, and just a little rough chop. The more thin that you slice up garlic, the stronger the garlic flavor will be in your final dish. So, just want, you know, small enough chunks so that people, whenever they eat your final pot roast, can actually chew through the garlic, but not so finely diced. getting very aromatic in the kitchen already. Okay, garlic in the pan. Now for the wet ingredients. A can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup. I'm not kidding. This is exactly what it says. Uh, the condensed kind. No need to do anything to it. Just plop it right over the pot roast. Great. And then a packet of French onion soup mix. Nora Ephron and Lillian Hellman had a pretty funny relationship with each other. They were kind of close, but then had some on and off again times in their friendship. And they always referred to each other as Miss Hellman and Miss Ephron to each other's faces. So I think that's very interesting. Okay. To that, clean up a little bit over here. Two cups red wine. If you're wondering what kind of red wine to use, Use any kind of red wine that you yourself would like to drink. And I shall be drinking some of this when Gab's parents come over for this wonderful literary dinner. And so this red wine, along with the cream of mushroom soup, is going to be the braising liquid for our pot roast here. Opening up a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. Laura, two cups wine, two cups water into the Dutch oven. Give it a little stir around here. And then some aromatics, some herbs and spices here. Let us add one bay leaf. I keep mine stored in a Loctite container so it stays longer. Okay. And then a teaspoon each of thyme 
and basil. Excellent. All right, pop your lid onto your pot or Dutch oven here and into the 350 degree oven where it's going to stay for the next uh, three hours or so. We'll check it after three, make sure that it's nice and tender and to temperature, and then we will take it up. Okay, so while this is in the oven cooking, let's get to work on our cheesecake filling. All right, food nerds, it's time to make some cheesecake. I have my graham cracker crust out of the oven and actually in the fridge, because you want that to be cooled all the way through before you apply your cheesecake filling to it, or else you'll just end up with a big puddle of fat on the bottom of your crust, and that, that doesn't sound very good to me. So, in a large mixing bowl, I have 12 ounces, or one and one half bricks of cream cheese with a cup of sugar, and I'm going to beat these up with a hand mixer. A stand mixer would be better if you had one, but alas, I do not, and I'll just have to make do with what I have, okay? And the reason why I'm doing it in this order is that I want the the pieces of sugar, the sugar granules, to cut through the cream cheese, almost acting like an abrasive and making that cream cheese, which I've softened already, a little bit easier to incorporate with the wet ingredients. So here we go. Okay, so the finished product you should have at the end there almost looks like what you have when you're finished creaming butter and sugar, okay? In another uh, bowl, I have four really well-beaten eggs with a teaspoon of vanilla, and I am going to slowly add in the beaten eggs to the cream cheese and sugar mixture, and all the while I'll scrape down the sides of the bowl every now and again. And what we want to see at the end is really good incorporation. No clumps of cream cheese anywhere, just very smooth, creamy consistency. So this might take a while. I'll check back in with you after I've finished making my cream cheese filling. Here we go. Okay, food nerds, I just beat the cheesecake filling in about three installments of egg mixture each time, scraping down the bowl to make sure that it's really well incorporated and it looks very smooth and creamy. No uh, chunks of cream cheese in there. So I'm going to pour this into my prepared graham cracker crust, filling it evenly throughout. Great. Meanwhile, I've got on my tea kettle water set to boil for the water bath that I'm going to bake this cheesecake in. Okay, so cheesecake is going to go into a roasting tray off to one side and then I'm going to fill it with water up onto the other sides and then bake it all together at 350 for about 45 minutes, 
is what Nor Efron says, so we will go with that. Okay. So, making sure that I carefully place this pan into the oven here without losing any cheesecake over the side. Mmm, I just got a smell of the pot roast. It smells delicious. Alright, pouring my water mixture in here and I will check back in with my cheesecake in 45 minutes. In the meantime, I'm going to make the filling now for my key lime pie. Stay tuned. Okay food nerds, we are back here to make some key lime pie. There's about 15 minutes left on our cheesecake, which gives us just enough time to start working on the filling for the key lime pie. I have six egg yolks here, and I'm going to beat in a bowl. Okay, to that, I'm going to add one cup lime juice, which I've freshly squeezed from about six large limes. I'm going to strain this through, catch some of the pulp. Though Nora Ephron says in her recipe, uh, the, the bottled lime juice would work just fine. This is going to have great lime flavor. One of those limes I zested before juicing. So I'm going to add about a tablespoon of zested or the zest of one large lime. Awesome. And to that, two 14 ounce cans of sweetened condensed milk. Ooh, this is very nice, luscious. I kind of feel like Julie from Julie and Julia, a movie that Nora Ephron actually uh, wrote in part, I think, if not the whole thing. And it's one of my favorite movies of hers. I think my all-time Nora Ephron romantic comedy favorite being When Harry Met Sally. Just so many great scenes from that movie. And I think through all of these different movies, you can see just how much Nora Ephron really loved food. So I've got my key lime pie filling here. And, you know, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast episode, Nora Ephron herself was not a professional cook, just someone who, like I said, loved food. And I think that her inexperience in cooking perhaps may be seen here in this recipe, which goes a little bit like this. You combine all the ingredients that I've told you to combine right there and beat them well in a bowl, and then you just put them in the freezer. Hmm. Which raw egg yolks and all go into the freezer? I don't know. Maybe this is something that one does somewhere. I'd be interested. Comment, food nerds, if you do your key lime pies this way. Perhaps Rachel from the, the book, the character Rachel in Heartburn, really did want to get her uh, husband, Mark Ill, from eating raw eggs, but I don't want any of my friends and family to get ill from this, so I am going to 
after I beat this filling and pour it into my already prepared graham cracker crust, add it into the oven at 350 degrees for about 18 to 20 minutes or until this custard sets and is still a little bit jiggly. Okay, so here we go. Let's beat up this filling. It's been about 45 minutes. Actually, it's been exactly 45 minutes. And I've taken out the cheesecake and replaced it in the oven with the key lime pie. Key lime pie is going to go in for 18 minutes to start. And But we're not done yet. I don't know if anybody has ever made so many recipes from Nora Ephron's heartburn at one time. And I'm getting a little bit of heartburn at the moment because there's yet another step for our cheesecake. After we let it cool completely for about 15 minutes and, and take it out of the water bath now, uh, we are going to gently scoop upon it sour cream mixed with a half a cup of sugar. So take one container or two cups of sour, sour cream and mix those together. I'm getting delirious. So much cooking. does it there. So this is basically a cheesecake in two layers. So we're going to spread this layer of sour cream on the top and then bake it for an additional 10 minutes. And at the end of those 10 minutes, we will be done. So make sure that you let your cheesecake cool a lot. 15 minutes worth of cooling so that your sour cream just doesn't melt all over the top yet. Okay, so we will take out the key lime pie put back in the cheesecake, and then return to our pot roast. Lots to do, food nerds. Stay tuned here. All right, food nerds, taking out the pot roast now and checking for its temperature. You want to get it in the 165 to 170 range. That means it's been cooked all the way through while it still will remain tender. And if it's a little bit below the 170, that's good because as you take it out of the oven, the residual heat will continue to cook it, uh, probably another additional five degrees, okay? So I actually don't want to use this pot roast today. Gab's parents are coming for dinner tomorrow night. And so what I'm gonna actually do is put it in the refrigerator and let it cool overnight. And there are a couple of advantages to doing this. The first is that the pot roast will let off a good amount of fat and whenever it's in the fridge, you can actually scrape off some of that fat before you reheat it the next day. And the other advantage is that the flavors that you've got in the braising liquid will seep more into the meat, okay? So I've taken out the pot roast now. I'm just letting it sit. And we have to, if we're going to put this in our refrigerator, take a couple things into consideration. The first is that if you pop this Dutch oven, into the refrigerator straight from your oven, it is going to drop the temperature in your refrigerator by a whole lot. Uh, and that could lead to the other products in the fridge spoiling. So we definitely want to avoid that. So what I'm going to do here is 
let's make a freezer of sorts, or a cooler at least, out of my kitchen sink. I'm filling up my kitchen sink now with cold water. And I'm going to add to it quite a bit of ice, okay? And I'm going to underfill now because I don't know how much displacement my Dutch oven will make and I definitely don't want to make the water seep into the pot. So I'm gonna fill my sink about halfway with cold ice water and then dunk my full Dutch oven into the, the sink full of this, this ice and water, okay? And another thing that this will help us avoid is what's called the danger zone in food handling where your food, as it cools down on the counter, stays for a long period of time at that temperature where the cooties like to get onto the, the bacteria and germs like to grow. So we are going to dump it in this ice and water bath to most quickly bring it to that point where we can put it in the refrigerator and then uh, keep it overnight. And we're going to reheat it the next day very well so as to make sure everybody is safe and in enjoying the pot roast. Okay, so once again, 170 degrees is what you're shooting for. Take it out when you see it gets to about 165 degree internal temperature with your meat thermometer. And I'm cooling it down in the sink and in the refrigerator overnight, but you of course can slice and enjoy right away. So, food nerds, won't you join me as I put the clocks forward, as it were, and in podcast time, take you 24 hours from now as I prepare three more dishes from Heartburn. Linguini alla ketchup, potatoes Anna, and the Dijon vinaigrette on a nice salad. And we're going to have a wonderful dinner with Gav's parents, and I'm super excited for them to come over. So food nerds, stay tuned. There's more recipes yet from Nora Efron's Heartburn. Hello, food nerds. 24 podcast hours have gone by, and I'm back here in my kitchen, ready to make the remaining three recipes from Nora Efron's Heartburn. We've got linguine a la chica. Notice how I've corrected my pronunciation over the past 24 hours. Sorry, my Italian food nerds and my family. Um, but we'll start on the, the chica recipe right now because the sauce has to cool down before it's added to the hot linguine. So Ms. Efron says that this recipe is best done when tomatoes are super fresh. And as it is mid-April now, that's not a possibility. So I'm using really good quality canned tomatoes from California or San Marzano tomatoes, whatever you, whatever you like. I've got it boiling here and I just get it to a boil, turn it off the boil, pour it into a bowl. Careful not to splatter all over myself. Alright, to this we add one cup chopped basil. And a clove of garlic sliced in half. Some salt and red chili pepper flakes are also called for in the recipe. I'm gonna go light on the salt because the canned tomatoes are already salted. 
So just giving this basil a nice rough chop. Meanwhile, my oven is preheating to 425. I got uh, peeled russet potatoes soaking in a pot of water so that we can get started on potatoes. Anna here as this linguine sauce cools down. It smells so good, the basil, I love the smell of fresh basil, so aromatics, it's like citrusy almost. Yeah, Gab's parents are coming over very shortly for dinner. I'm gonna try to pull all of this together before they arrive and have a really nice literature inspired meal. Okay, basil goes into the, the bowl with the tomatoes. Clove of garlic time now. Smush it down, take one of the cloves out, slice it in half, simple as can be. And everybody in the pool. I'm going to go light on the pepper flakes. You can go as many pepper flakes as you like and can handle. Salt. And a cup of olive oil. This almost eats like a cold pasta salad because the linguine noodles will be warm, but the sauce will be cold. Okay, giving this a big stir. I'm gonna squish the tomatoes a little bit so that they are less chunky. All right. So with that, food nerds, pasta sauce done. So easy. I'm gonna get out my food processor here because we're gonna get into perhaps the most intense part of any of these recipes. Peeling these potatoes that I got here into 1 16th inch rounds, as it calls for in Nora Efron's recipe. Um, I could do this on my grater, but that would take time and also risk my appendages. So I'm just gonna do it in my food processor and let the technology work for me. Okay, I'm gonna get that set up and tell you how to assemble the potatoes, Anna. Right back. All right, food nerds, it's time to start assembling our potatoes, Anna. Some things that you're going to want to have nearby as you begin this include paper towels, your salt, pepper, and clarified butter with a tablespoon of that clarified butter into a cast iron skillet. Okay, you're gonna to wanna to work quickly here. I've got my potatoes sliced in half just to start them as they go onto the food processor. Okay, with the fine slicing blade and wide side of the potato down, I'm going to slice up some potatoes and then quickly dry them off and move them into the cast iron. Okay, I'm just going to work one potato at a time. And I'm making layers of overlapping potato rounds. You wanna make sure these are dried off really well or they won't get crispy. This is a labor of love here. 
And in between each layer of potato and clarified butter, you're going to salt and pepper. Very nice. Okay, I'll make sure to take a picture of my overlapping potatoes for y'all on Instagram, and I will get ready. I'm doubling up this recipe here because the original recipe calls for just three potatoes to serve two. I'm making this recipe for four, so I'm using six potatoes. Okay, so I will catch you right back here after I assemble my potatoes, Anna, and put it in my 425 degree oven for 45 minutes. And then we haven't forgotten about that pot roast yet. We gotta reheat that, and I'll tell you how to do that in just a minute. All right, food nerds, the potatoes, Anna, are in the oven at 425 degrees. You're gonna keep them in there for 45 minutes, and then in the last 10 minutes of cooking, you are going to turn the heat up to 500 degrees to get them nice and crisp. Okay, now turning our attention back to the pot roast. As you remember, I cooked that yesterday and stored it in the refrigerator overnight. And what I did before I put it back on my stovetop at a medium-high heat is skim the fat off the top of it, just taking a ladle, trying to get all of the congealed fat, or as much as I can. You're not going to be able to get all of it. And I also, at this point, cut the little string that is around the, my chuck roast and lastly pull the bay leaf out because nobody wants to chew on one of those. Okay, so that has returned to the stovetop at a medium-high heat and dinner is almost ready. I just have to make the salad and pull this all together here and I'm going to walk you through here right now Rachel Samstad's very famous vinaigrette recipe. So let me gather my ingredients, my Dijon mustard, Grey Poupon, as it says in the book, some good red wine vinegar, and olive oil. Here we are, food nerds. We've reached our final recipe from Heartburn. We're going to make right now Rachel Samstad's famous vinaigrette, which, as I told you earlier on in this episode, is really a great Poupon recipe from the test kitchens of, of Kraft Heinz at some point. So, two tablespoons. Grey Poupon Dijon mustard in a bowl, followed by two tablespoons of red wine vinegar. Okay. This is going to make a very thick and strong vinaigrette. Okay, really nice for a salad. Heffron recommends serving this with a salad of arugula, watercress, and endive. I wasn't able to find watercress, but I do have some arugula and endive on hand, so I'm going to mix those up in a salad bowl. Make sure that you whisk together the red wine vinegar and the Dijon mustard before, slowly drizzling in six tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil. Stirring or whisking constantly. Really love Dijon mustard for vinaigrettes because it's such a great emulsifier. It always pulls the dressing together really well, making it nice and thick. Just love it. Okay. 
And you don't have to drizzle your olive oil in so slowly that, you know, your dinner guests are here already and you're uh, still stirring away the vinaigrette. But you definitely don't want to over pour the oil because then it will just be a little bit more difficult to uh, combine it all together. Meanwhile, I'm just checking on my pot roast, making sure that nothing is sticking or burning, stirring that every once in a while. Okay. One more tablespoon here of olive oil. And now, finally get to taste something. I think this is the first time I've tasted anything on today's episode. Here it is, Rachel Samstead's from the Heartburn, very famous Grey Poupon vinaigrette. Mm. It is really, really nice. Nice, strong, vinegary flavor, really good spiciness from the Dijon mustard. That's a delish salad dressing. On that note, we should taste some more stuff here. I'm gonna get Gab in here, and I think we should taste some dessert first. All right, food nerds, be on the lookout for that right back. Okay, food nerds, it's been so fun cooking through Nora Efron's heart barn, heartburn with you. Heartburn? I got it. <laughs> As you can hear, Gab is here with me. She came out because she heard there was something to taste. Yeah. Was, so, Gab, I don't know what you think about this. We're going to do something that I've always taught, been taught was bad, and mm-hmm. eat dessert first. I'm Try here some for it. Here some for anti-Gregorian it. activism as well. Heck yeah. All right, so we've got the cheesecake here, key lime pie, and we w- we just want to make sure that it tastes good for our guests later. Yeah, we wouldn't want anyone to get poisoned. <laughs> or have to eat bad pie, if there is such pie. a bad, if there even such a thing. Okay, so I don't think anybody's going to miss this little corner of the cheesecake that I'm pulling out here. Nobody's even going to notice that. Should I have to get one too? Sure. All right. Tasting the cheesecake Cheesecake here. cheers. Cheesecake cheers. <laughs> That's good. Good. Don't dip that same spoon back in. Why? Let's try the king lime pie. Because. Cooties, gross. It is your family coming over, though. Okay, how about some key lime? I took a big chunk out of it. Here you cheers. go. All you again. That's really good. Limey. Which one do you like better, Nick? Key lime. Key lime. Oh, they're both really good. I'm actually not that big of a cheesecake guy. But delish. Literally delish. <laughs> it's literally delicious, y'all. All right, food nerds. On that note, I think it's time to end today's episode. I physically do not have any room left to add anything else. So we're going to skip the last bite this week and see you all back here next week for some more food shenanigans. Stay hungry, food nerds. Be well. Stay hungry.